All right. Okay. Keep them all awake. All right. Um, thank you, Karen and uh, Paul, and for all of you for your warm welcome. I'm really happy to be here, and uh, it's been a very special time already. Yesterday we had uh, some wonderful teaching sessions here in this room, and uh, I'm glad to be back here again uh, for Sunday morning. Um, I'm, my name is Peter. I'm a Japanese-American Israeli. And uh, my wife, uh, Rita, and I have been living in Israel for the last almost 26 years. Uh, since she's Jewish, we went in 1987 as immigrants. We became citizens. Uh, in 1991, after the first Gulf War, uh, we were uh, privileged to co-found a Messianic congregation that reaches out both to Jews and Arabs on the top of Mount Carmel. So our city is Haifa. Uh, and it's built on a mountain. The mountain is called Mount Carmel, and you know it from your Bible as the place where Elijah, the prophet, confronted the false prophets. And uh, it's been known as the mountain of great decisions because he turned to the people and said, choose today whom you will serve. And, uh, and there was this great confrontation that ended in uh, Israel turning back to the Lord after a, a, a time of uh, backsliding uh, for more than a generation. So there was a, a national uh, turning that took place on Mount Carmel. And it uh, seems like everywhere I go, people uh, love to sing that song, These Are the Days of Elijah. And uh, I just, uh, you know, it always makes me feel a, a little bit at home uh, when, I'm, when I'm far away. Actually, there's a story about that song. It was written by a young Irish uh, singer-songwriter named Robin Mark. And uh, he, uh, apparently, apparently he wrote that song back in the 1990s. And, but it, it kind of languished for a while. But after the millennium, after the year 2000, all of a sudden it started to get popular and people started to ask him to sing it. I don't know. And, and he says there's just a season for songs, you know. And so that one kind of uh, caught fire after the year 2000. And, um, and one time he was invited to do some ministry in Jerusalem. So he was uh, uh, leading worship uh, and uh, singing for different groups in Jerusalem. And he was about ready to leave. And it was Saturday, which is our Sabbath when most of the Messianic congregations meet, because Sunday in our country is a working day. Sunday is Monday for us. And uh, uh, someone said, how can, you, how can you come to Israel and leave uh, having written this song without singing it on Mount Carmel? And he says, well, I don't know. Where is Mount Carmel? And they said, well, you know, it's in, it's in Haifa. Haifa is a two-hour drive from, from Jerusalem. So I don't know how it exactly worked out, but they put him in a taxi. And, uh, and they drove him to Mount Carmel, and he arrived in time for the beginning of our service, which is 11 in the morning. Uh, he, he rushed into the sanctuary with his guitar on his back, this young Irish guy. Okay, we stopped whatever we were doing. Okay, he led us in that song, put his guitar back in the bag, got back in his taxi, and went to the airport. <laughs> So I can say I have met Robin Mark, okay, <laughs> at least 15 minutes, you know, and uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's a story from, from Mount Carmel. Um, this morning, uh, I know our time is limited. I want to talk to you about Islam and uh, the spirit, the identity, and the destiny of Islam, because as you know, what's characterizing our world is this conflict uh, that seems to have no end uh, in the Middle East. As soon as one war or rumor of war uh, concludes, there just seems to be another one. 
And now, of course, there's this uh, civil war raging right across our border uh, in Syria. It threatens to kind of spill over into Lebanon and uh, into Jordan. And behind all of this is the looming threat of Iran's nuclear program. And so we're just we're dealing with the spirit of, uh, of Islam on a daily basis uh, in Israel. So I'd just like to, to teach you a little bit about that. So would you just bow your heads for a moment with me in prayer? Lord, we just thank you for your spirit uh, right here, uh, here in this room with us today. And we ask, Lord, that you'll open our hearts and open our minds. You'll stir up the gift in me to teach and to be clear, and you'll redeem uh, each minute of this time that we give you uh, this morning as an offering. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, just a second. I'm going to turn, take off my watch here so I can keep track. Okay, now, the thing about this conflict between Jews and, uh, and Muslims is that it's, it's ultimately not political, but uh, it is uh, biblical and spiritual. And in fact, uh, in, in brief, the Bible describes uh, the conflict between Jews and Muslims as the longest-running family feud in the history of the world. It's two sides of Abraham's family uh, arguing uh, over an inheritance. And... Um, once uh, this really sinks in, it sounds very simplistic, but once it sinks in, it, uh, you'll begin to realize why the most uh, talented and highly paid and famous uh, politicians in the world have not been able to solve this problem with political solutions. Uh, and just in the 25 years that I've been a citizen of Israel, we've seen American administrations come and go, and uh, presidents and secretaries of state and secretaries of defense uh, come and go through the region. Everyone has to have their solution. You know, it's part of the, part of the, um, the roadmap, and, um, and nothing seems to work. They come and put their political band-aids on what is ultimately not a political issue. And uh, because this is a spiritual and a biblical issue and, a, uh, and really a family issue at that. Nevertheless, um, uh, we do have a, a war that we fight, even though we're not fighting against Muslim people or even Islam as a religion. The Bible makes clear that our, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And there is a spirit that we do uh, have to resist and have to make war against. And I would characterize this spirit behind uh, Islam as a spirit that is a spirit of hostility, a spirit of fear, intimidation, and murder. Uh, and when this spirit, this is a dark principality and a dark uh, power, and when this power is broken, uh, and I believe that uh, many of us uh, sitting in this room will live to see that spirit shattered, uh, on that same day, millions of people who are today Muslims will push their way into the kingdom of God and proclaim Jesus as king. Uh, because... What, what keeps them in and what keeps them out of the Muslim world is not so much they themselves as people. It's not even really their religion. It's the spirit behind that. It's the spirit of fear and intimidation. Okay? You, uh, you, uh, if you're Muslim and you change religions, you die. Okay? If you come into uh, a Muslim country and preach the gospel, you die. Okay? It's, uh, uh, you betray, uh, you, you question Muhammad, you say anything that is, uh, that is uh, 
considered like a, a blasphemy against Muhammad, you die. And so there's this, this, uh, this fear, okay? And that's what keeps them in and that's what keeps them out. The day that fear is removed and Muslims actually have the freedom to choose who they will worship on that day, millions, millions, tens of millions will choose to worship Isa, Jesus, uh, the Jewish Messiah. Okay, but there is a, a human root that we uh, need to understand uh, in, the, in the Muslim heart that will really help us, I believe, to have compassion and be able to pray with, with, uh, with the Lord's heart uh, for the Muslim world. And it is really important to pray for the Muslim world now. And that human root is, uh, is, is just this one word, and the word is rejection. I mean, if you understand rejection and the dynamic, the human dynamic of rejection, then you will be given an insight into, into the, the Muslim heart and the Arab world, and, uh, and you'll have, a, have a, a lever to begin to have compassion for those people and to begin to pray for them. And we've all experienced rejection. Uh, rejection is a, is a wound that can go very, very deep. If you've been rejected by someone important to you, uh, your father or your mother, if you've been rejected by your husband or wife, by your children, by a spiritual leader, uh, a pastor or, or a friend, uh, you know that uh, these wounds of rejection uh, hurt um, in, a, in a way that it goes far beyond just physical pain. And uh, this, kind, this kind of hurt is is long-lasting and debilitating. And in many cases, the hurt and the wound of rejection uh, seems to resist even the, the normal kinds of prayer. Um, uh, you know, and there's a, there's a myth that, that people tell about rejection and the wounds of rejection. And the myth goes something like this, time heals all wounds. Okay, it's a lie, all right? Time, time heals nothing. It's the decision to forgive that starts the, the healing process and, uh, and, and begins to open our hearts to the spirit of God that can ultimately bring healing. I, I know people who were rejected by their parents. They're still angry at mom or dad deep inside uh, their, their hearts years after their mother or father have already passed away. I mean, you know, it's like uh, it, it's irrational. It, it, uh, it, it has no, uh, no, no, no reason for that. Uh, nevertheless, this is, the, this is the dynamic of rejection. It's a, it's a long-standing, deep wound that in, in many ways is resistant to the normal kinds of prayer. Uh, now, of course, the Lord has a solution for all rejection, and his solution is found in his own son, Jesus, our Messiah. Um, Jesus understands rejection. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Okay, he was rejected by the very people he came to save. Uh, he was uh, killed uh, and, uh, and tortured and, uh, and beaten uh, uh, for no good reason. He was he was as an as an innocent man, uh, even even in the last moments of his life, uh, his own father uh, turned away from him, and he cried out, uh, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" So uh, here here is one uh, who understands uh, what rejection is at at the deepest levels, and yet 
In Jesus, we see the only begotten Son of God. So all the love, all the acceptance, all the compassion, all the, all the, the fellowship that is in the heart of God, our Creator, is focused on really one person. And that person is His Son. He has only one begotten Son. Everything the Father has, He, has, he gives to His Son. It's a, it's a deep, powerful acceptance and love. There is no person in the universe more accepted than Jesus. He came to earth and experienced rejection as a human, and yet he himself as the Son of God is, is the ultimately accepted person. He says, I and the Father are one. Okay, we, we, are, we are together in all things. Whatever he says, that's what I say. Whatever I see him do, that's what I do. He has this powerful acceptance from God his Father. And so if any of us have ever experienced rejection, if, um, if we have this long-standing wound deep in our heart and we begin to come to God, the source of all acceptance and healing, if we begin to come to God in his Son, Jesus, then from that moment on, we begin to experience the ultimate acceptance of God. And all right, you may be the most rejected person in the world. You, you know, your your parents didn't want to have you. They tried to abort you. You, uh, you. you survived miraculously. You were born by accident. They gave you up at birth. You were raised by strangers who didn't want you. Your your fiance uh, broke off her engagement with you. I mean, and, and then your pastor told you to get out. What else could happen to you? <laughs> okay. All right. You may be the most rejected person in the world, but... The day you come before God wrapped in the robe of Jesus' righteousness, when you come before God in him, from that moment on, the pure, healing, powerful acceptance of God begins to flow down upon you. The same acceptance, the same love, the same regard that God has for his son Jesus, now it begins to flow into you. And you begin to taste Maybe for many of us, the, for the first time in your life, what it means to really belong, what it means to be really loved, what it means to be really special, to be accepted in an eternal, ultimate way. And that begins the healing. And when we turn and begin to forgive those who rejected us and hurt us, that begins to complete the healing, and we can become whole in Christ. Okay? But if you understand how, how deep, outside of Christ, how, how, how people struggle with hurts and wounds that just, just never seem to go away, you'll understand why there's a very common human way of coping with rejection. Okay, People who, who don't find that healing in Jesus often find a way to deal with this hurt that is just always there in their life, they learn to deal with this by using a, a very human human mechanism or a human, a human decision that we would call denial. Okay, and denial is kind of a lie you tell yourself, you know. It's not that bad. I don't hurt that much. It never happened that way. That wasn't it. You know, the, the people that hurt me, actually, they were my really my best friends all along, you, you tell yourself a lie, you shove that, that rejection down, and you just go on, right? 
And, um, and you know, it actually works in a, in a superficial way. And that's why, why it's so common. And, and, you know, the truth is almost everyone uses this to some extent. We shove it down. We just go on. Now, the problem with that, uh, the good part about that is it helps us cope. You, you can, you know, you can get back and start doing stuff. You can begin, you can function, all right? You're not, you're not going to be crippled by this deep, deep hurt. The problem is it doesn't heal the hurt. The hurt just stays there, festering. And, and, uh, and uh, it begins to come out in other ways. Typically, that kind of wound will manifest itself when you're under a lot of pressure. You're under a lot of pressure and you have to make hard, difficult decisions fast and someone bothers you, you can just lash out at that person. And afterwards, you're surprised. You say, you know, I didn't mean to you know, hurt that person or to say those things or to be, be so hurtful or so harsh. You know? And the other person is shocked and hurt at the same time. I didn't, I didn't realize you were like that. Okay? But it's because there, there's something in there. This denial is, is so common, and, and it's often accompanied with a layer of hostility that protects the denial. Okay? We, tell, we tell the story that everything is okay, we tell that lie, and then we protect that lie with hostility. I'm okay, leave me alone. All right? All right? Don't go there. All right? Don't go there in, in my life. Okay? We're fine. Right? We can work together. We can be friends. We can live in the same house. But just, just don't go there. Okay? So we protect it with a, with a layer of hostility. You know, part of my, my work as a pastor is, uh, is counseling. And over the years, you know, I've, I, it's been my, my privilege and my duty to counsel some people. And so I'm going to tell you kind of a, a scenario that maybe for some of you is familiar. And for others, others of you, you might recognize this in yourself or in, in other people. Let's say there's someone in your, in your community that has a pattern that whenever this person, he or she, is really tired or under pressure, they have, they have a tendency to, to be harsh with people, unnecessarily harsh. And it can be almost anyone, but it, but it happens on a more or less regular basis. And so people, uh, people are developing problems with this person. Okay, So you hear about this. Oh, so-and-so has a problem with this person. Another person has a problem, or some, some stranger, some visitor, some guest, okay? So it's a, it's a pattern. So you take the initiative, and you reach out to the person who's, who's, having, who's at the center of all of this, and you, and you, and you bring him or her in uh, to your office, and you sit down, and you just, you just talk. You, know, you say, well, let's, let, you know, let's talk about what's happening. And, then, and uh, he or she will say this, or say that, and, and you probe a little bit, and, and after a while... You say something like this. You know, um, I've, been, I've been listening to what you say, and, and I know a little bit about what's, uh, what's been happening uh, in your life, and, and here, here's what I think. I think that, uh, that the issues you've been having with these numbers of, of people uh, that we both know, uh, the, it's, it's really rooted to a hurt 
that is that is deep in your life that is yet unhealed. And, you know, perhaps it 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 came about uh, that that someone you trusted or someone that you that that you loved rejected you and and left a wound and uh, and that wound is yet unhealed. Now, but but I believe that if if we together were to open tell that story and and open this up to God that through prayer and by asking Jesus to come into that very place in your life you could you could you could experience substantial healing and a lot of the issues that are that are taking place around you maybe a lot of them would be solved so you say something like that okay and then this person looks at you and there's a moment of quiet and then he or she says how dare you how dare you i came to you because I thought you were going to help me. Now, what, what, what are you saying? You're accusing me of being the, the root and the cause of all of these problems that I'm having with all of these other people. I'm the problem. I'm the hurt one. I'm, I'm the wounded one. So it's all my fault? I came to you for help. This isn't help. This is abuse. Who is your superior anyway? I'd like to have that person's telephone number. I'm going to make a report about you. Anyone experience anything similar to that? Okay. What you're dealing with is hurt, denial, and a layer of hostility protecting the denial. Okay? All right. Have you, how many of you got that? Okay. If you got that, you got the Middle East. All right. <laughs> Okay, if you can understand that, you you can understand the, the whole Middle East. All right? Okay, all right. So let's let's go on. Why why is this this issue about rejection? Okay, it's because God is a sovereign king, and he not, doesn't just reign over the kingdom. He doesn't just reign over his creation from far away in a disconnected, uh, you know, distant, uh, divine way, okay? But not only is he king of kings and lord of lords, he is an up-close, in-your-face, get-personal manager of the kingdom. God doesn't just reign over the kingdom. He rules the kingdom, and God rules the kingdom by making decisions, and any of you who've ever been in any kind of managerial position or leading a home group or being a father or mother in a family, you know that you have to make decisions about other people. And in fact, some of you even know that the decisions you make about other people are the most important decisions you'll ever make. If you're running a, 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 a business or in charge of a department or, or even in a family, You've got to get the right people in the right place at the right time. If you do that, no matter what you have to achieve, probably it's going to succeed. You get the right people in the right place at the right time, it's going to work. But you also know if you get the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time, no matter what you're trying to do, it probably won't work. God knows that. God makes choices. And his most important choices that God makes are about people. God also knows something that, that we, we learn as we, as we grow and mature. He also knows that the moment he chooses one for anything, he automatically rejects everybody else. Isn't that true? And it's the same in our lives. You choose someone to marry, 
you reject everybody else. There could be hurt feelings. There could be rejection. There could be wounds. There could be hostility, okay? But you've got to choose, right? And God knows that. The Bible really is the record of God's choices, right? He chose Abel's sacrifice, not Cain's. He chose Joseph and gave him a special dream, okay? And on and on and on. The, the Bible is also the record of human response to God's choices. And this whole thing in the Middle East, the whole thing between Jews and Arabs began with a choice that God made as sovereign king. Now, the other side of this is with God. When he chooses, it's always right. He's never wrong. God God has never been wrong, and God will never be wrong. That, that's why he's God. I can be wrong. I've been wrong, and I will be wrong in my choices in the future. You too, but not God. So let's take a look at one of God's choices. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 1, and let's uh, go to verse 2. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Malachi is the last book in your English Old Testament. Not in the Hebrew Old Testament, by the way. Okay, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, God said that there were... Two boys born, they were twins of the same mother and father. And, you know, I don't believe it's speaking of an emotional, an emotional love here primarily. I think what God is saying, with Jacob, I found the basis of a love relationship. But with Esau, I found no such basis. So therefore, Jacob, I chose. Jacob is my choice. Esau, I reject it. Now, if you have a problem with God making a choice like that in a family, sovereignly from heaven, about two boys who were twins, then I urge you, go to the New Testament and read Romans chapter 9. Because the Apostle Paul quotes this same verse and defends God's right to choose. He says, you're going to question God? You You're going to get in God's face and say that was unfair? Part of of dealing with God's choices is learning to accept his choices. God chose Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Cain didn't respond real well to that. God chose Joseph and not his brothers for greatness and prominence, gave him a great dream. The other brothers did not respond very well to that choice, okay? Part of being in God's kingdom is successfully is learning to recognize God's choice and no matter what it costs you to embrace it. If you can embrace God's choice of someone else and really learn to do that with grace, the day will not be soon, will not be far off. It will be soon. When the finger of God is pointing to you and saying, I'm choosing you for this. I have 
I have designed this just for you, and I'm requiring everybody else to accept that. All right? That's how the kingdom works. The kingdom is a kingdom because there is a king, and he rules the kingdom by making choices. Okay, He made a choice between Jacob and Esau. Now, we know the story of Jacob and Esau because it's in the, it's in the Bible, and it's a, it's a very interesting story. I'm not going to go into all the, the great details of this story because we don't have time. But you know, we know this, that they were twins, that they were, they were part of the chosen family. Okay? Abraham was chosen by God, and he was made a, God made a covenant with him. Abraham's son Isaac took on that same mantle and carried the inheritance. And then Isaac married Rebekah. Rebekah became pregnant with twins. And God spoke to Rebekah before they were born, before the boys were born. God spoke to the mother and said, the older one will serve the younger one. In other words, the younger one is God's choice. But, you know, somehow Isaac, it seems, never got the message. Or if God spoke to him, he didn't, he didn't listen. Because it was clear from, the, from day one, the older son was Isaac's favorite. Now, it says that, um, that uh, when the boys were born as, as twins, Esau was actually the first one out of his mother's womb. And Jacob came out holding his foot, okay? And so, so they called him Jacob, which means supplanter or striver or one who takes what belongs to someone else, okay? He came out holding on to his brother's foot. And and from the from their birth they were they were different. Okay, the Bible says that Esau came out from from uh, from Rebekah's womb already with hair all over his body. And that when Jacob was born he was different, he was smooth. Now I believe this is conclusive proof that the chosen people are the Japanese. <laughs> You can question me about that later, but all right. I think I think it's a it's a that that case is closed. All right. And when these boys grew up, they were completely different from one another. Esau was probably big, strong, and athletic, and he became a great hunter. Right? He would go out into the forests and the fields and track down these wild animals, kill them, and drag their bodies back to put meat on the family table. That was Esau. And in the eyes of his father, he was like a hero. I mean, he could, he could do no wrong. And, and Isaac would have wanted nothing more than, than for Esau to become his heir. And, and Jacob, oh, Jacob, you know, what good will Jacob be? I mean, you know, while Esau, his brother, is out doing these exploits for the family, what do you suppose Jacob was doing? Well, I think Jacob was at home uh, back in the tent sharing recipes with his mother's friends. <laughs> Because, because you know, the Bible says that Jacob wasn't a mighty hunter. He was a good cook. I mean, really a good one. And the day came when Esau came back from the field. He'd been out maybe for days. He was starving and hungry. And it just so happened that he enters the camp right at the time when Jacob has taken his gourmet red lentil stew out of the oven. Okay, I mean, it's just, just the timing of that. You know? you know. And so Esau walks into the camp and says, Brother, give me some of that stew. I am so hungry. And Jacob says, no problem, bro. You can have my stew. Just give me your birthright in exchange. All right, now the birthright was the double portion that was given to the first son. And uh, you don't give away your birthright, okay? But Esau was the kind of guy who says, what good is a birthright when a man is as hungry as I am? 
You can't eat a birthright. <laughs> oh, no problem. You take the birthright, give me the stew. All right? And so from that day on, Jacob had his brother's birthright. And then later his father was ready to pass away. And uh, Isaac was blind. And it was time for him to bless his boys. Okay? And this, there was this fatherly blessing that would be imparted by his, his words and by his, by his laying on of hands. And, uh, and Jacob knew that his father was never going to bless him with any kind of good blessing. Okay? So he, he conspired with his mother to trick his father into giving him the blessing that was meant for Esau. I mean, really, what a family, right? I mean, this, <laughs> this is the realism of the biblical account is, is really kind of amazing. Uh, family politics, okay? So they know, you know, Jacob is smooth and, and uh, Esau has hair, so they put a goat skin over, over Jacob's arm, okay? And he cooks a special stew like he knows his father likes with meat in it this time, okay? And uh, he goes in to his father, and his father is blind and says, uh, who is it? And, uh, and Jacob says, it's Esau. <laughs> and so, so, so Isaac reaches out his hand and says, well, you better come closer because it doesn't sound like Esau. All right? Come close. And he puts his hand on the goatskin. He says, okay, it doesn't sound like Esau, but it feels like Esau. And he gives the blessing, okay, by mistake. To, to Jacob. And then afterwards, of course, Jacob has to run because when Esau comes back, he's lost his birthright. He's lost the blessing. Everything that he had has been taken by his brother. And here's how he responds to that. Now, we know that somehow God is behind this, okay, because God had chosen Jacob. But let's take a look at how Esau responded to this. Um, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 27. And let's take a look beginning in verse 41. Genesis 27, verse 41. Uh, you know, for, for us, the Japanese here, I, I need to apologize for that remark because I also am Japanese on both sides of my family, going back as many generations as, uh, as can be Im- imagined, and I am smooth. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Okay, so it wasn't meant to be a racial slur. Okay. Okay, um, Genesis 27, verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Okay, so Esau was bitter. And uh, at the rejection that he had faced, he was deeply wounded. And so he said, here's how I'm going to deal with it. As soon as my father passes away, I'm just going to murder my brother. Okay, Esau's bitterness of rejection led him in a, to a desperate attempt to win back his, his parents' favor. And so he did something else. Let's take a look in Genesis 28, the next chapter. Genesis 28, starting in verse 6. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Badan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. Verse 9, 
So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So Esau, in his hurt and in his bitterness after experiencing this kind of rejection, what did he do? He went to a relative named Ishmael and married Ishmael's oldest daughter. Okay, here's the question. Who is Ishmael? Well, Ishmael is another rejected brother from a generation earlier when God had made a similar choice and told Abraham, Ishmael will not be your heir. Your wife Sarah will have a son. You will name him Isaac and Isaac will be your heir. Okay, do you remember that story in the Bible? God made that choice. He said, send, I will bless Ishmael, but send him away. He's not going to be in the chosen line. So that's why when we Christians, we say, I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, that phrase just rolls off our tongue, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Really, what we're, what we're doing is we're recounting a series of key choices that God made over a period of several generations. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons who became the heads of the tribes of Israel. From them, we get Moses and the law, the judges, the prophets, and the kings, Jesus, the disciples, and the New Testament. And then we come along, Gentile Christians, we're grafted into the Abrahamic tree by faith. Abraham becomes our father by faith. Isn't that right? But we're grafted into that side of the family. So we know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know their stories. We know their children's stories. We sing songs about them. And, and, and we, we know well that side of the family. What about the other side of the family? What about the people of Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau? Well, guess what? Their sons, their grandsons, their names, and their territories are in the Bible. Throughout the book of Genesis, there they are. Their son, the names of their children, the names of their grandchildren, the territories that God gave them. But we don't memorize the names of their children. We don't know their stories. In fact, to be really honest with you, we haven't really even cared until now. Why do we care now about the other side of Abraham's family? Well, because they have all the oil. Because the other side of Abraham's family, it's understood, are the Arab people. I mean, if the Arabs, you know, the Arabs in, throughout the Middle East look back to Ishmael as their great father. Okay, so there, there's an issue of rejection there. All right, but it's not really a human rejection because it was a choice that God made. The trail of responsibility goes back to God. God chose. He accepted one. He rejected another. So you're talking about the rejected side of the family. Now, at this point, we have to, we have to look carefully and say, okay, so the Arab people were rejected, but what did, what did God give them? Well, 98% of the Middle East, everything but a little tiny sliver of land along the Mediterranean, all the oil, 22 different nations and over a billion people. What were the Jewish people chosen for? 
dispersion, wandering the nations, massacres, slaughters, the Holocaust, systematic murder, and to come back a remnant after 2,000 years. So take your pick. I mean, which side is the blessed side? I mean, you know, if you know what I'm saying, in a, in a human sense. Nevertheless, the Arab side of the family is not the chosen side for the redemptive plan of God. And so there is an issue there of rejection that leads all the way back to God. Now, what happened about 700 years after the New Testament? Well, about 700 years after the time of Jesus, another person arose in what is today Saudi Arabia. Okay, they didn't have those nations then because most of the Middle Eastern nations are the creation of the colonial powers. This man arose in, in Arabia, a man named Muhammad, and he says he got a revelation from an angel that came from God. And that revelation today is known as the Quran. And basically the Quran denies everything I told you up until now. The understanding of the Quran is that God never chose Isaac. God never chose Jacob. Allah always chose Ishmael. The inheritance always went to Ishmael. There were, never was an inheritance that went to Isaac or Jacob. That's, how, that's why Muslim leaders today can stand up and receive the support of, the, of, of their followers and, and, and the, the acceptance of the rest of the world when they say Israel has no right to exist. The Jews have no acceptance. There's, there's no reason for the Jewish state to even exist. We will wipe it off the map. This is what the president of Iran has been saying, even in the United Nations. But this is the basic understanding of the Arab world. You know, when we, when we clash with the Muslims in Israel, it's not about borders. It's not about politics. It's about existence. They say, you shouldn't be here at all. It's not about, let's move the border here. Let, give me a few more meters. You take a few meters here. I'll take a few meters there, and let's live in peace. It's not like that. Their deep understanding from the Quran is, you shouldn't be here at all. You don't belong. You're a foreign colonial plant. You don't, you don't belong in the Middle East. This is all the territory of Allah, all the territory of Islam. We're just... We either either short-term through military action or long-term through politics, you are going to be gone, and we're the ones who are going to be here. Basically, that's, that's the understanding. So what I'm trying to say to you is that the Quran denies the Bible in, in these important points. One of, the, uh, one of the clearest statements of the Quran, which is repeated over and over again, is... God is not a father that he should have a son. Okay, interestingly, if, if you take the time to look into the Quran, and they actually do have, have translations of it, although they shouldn't, because the Quran should only be read in Arabic, according to their, their understanding. But there are translations of it. You'd be amazed how much of the Bible is in the Quran. Over and over again, it will say, the Christians say this, or the Jews say this, but Allah is not like that. Allah is not a father that he should have a son. In fact, that surah and, and that, that portion of the Quran is so important to them, it, it is what is written on the inside of the Dome of the Rock. Okay, the Golden Dome Monument. Okay, 
that is uh, there on the top of what we consider to be the Temple Mount in Israel. It used to be that non-Muslims were invited to go in as tourists, okay, up until about five or six years ago. They, they stopped that now. But when we could go in, you'd go in and you could see in this beautiful Arabic script in the, on the inside of the dome that particular surah. God is not a father that he should be, have a son. So the Quran denies that the inheritance was given to, to, to Isaac and to Jacob. The Quran denies that God has a son. It denies that Jesus was the one who died on the cross. Jesus is in the Quran. Moses is in the Quran. Moses was a Muslim. King David is in the Quran. King David was a Muslim. Okay, what I'm trying to say is that Islam is that, is that lie that denies what the Bible says. In fact, it, it derives its power from the fact of its denial, the way the sun is reflected off the moon. The moon derives its light from the sun. Interestingly, the symbol of Islam is the crescent moon. So if you understand that Islam is the denial of the rejection the Bible says took place, now is that denial protected by a layer of hostility? I mean, can you go to Tehran or Riyadh in Saudi Arabia? I mean, what if you were to go to Saudi Arabia today and say, you know what? I think I got it all figured out. I've got the solution for you. Here's my solution. You know, you, you Arabs, the, the real problem is that God didn't choose you for that particular inheritance. He chose the Jews. And, and you were rejected. And you were wounded. Nevertheless, God has a solution for you if you would open your hearts to his son and the healing that comes through the acceptance of his son and allow and, and begin to forgive the Jews and the Christians for, for whatever they have done against you over the years. You would, you would experience substantial healing. And, and this whole issue of fighting, fighting with Israel over a tiny sliver of land, 2% of the Middle East, with none of the oil as far as anyone knows, I mean, what, what would be, that, that problem could so easily be solved. All right, so if you went to Saudi Arabia and you told them that, what do you think would happen to you? Okay, they just kill you. Okay, that's called hostility, all right? That's called hostility. So you see there's a rejection. There's a denial, a religious denial, and a hostility that covers that, in, that denial. You know, you're not, you're not allowed to question the Quran. I mean, I mean, scholars for centuries question the Bible. They, they try to pick the Bible apart, okay? Even Christian scholars, you know, will go after the Bible with sharp instruments, okay, to try to disprove it. And year after year, the Bible stands. You're not allowed to, to have that kind of critical examination of the Quran, okay? It's a, it's a denial that is protected by hostility. Okay, so, so what is God's plan? God's plan is to break through that hostility. Now, let's say you are counseling a family. All right, let's go on with this rejection uh, paradigm. Let's say you're counseling a family. One member of the family is alcoholic and in denial. And so you go to that person, the one with the alcohol problem, 
and you say, look, um, I want to talk to you about your drinking. And that person says, ha, drinking? I take a drink every once in a while, but I got it all under control. Leave me alone, all right? Get out. But you go to the other members of the family, and you ask the same question, and they say, it's a disaster. You have no idea what goes on here. It's killing us. It's killing us as a family. Okay, what do you do? Do you just back away? Do you say, okay, well, your problem, this is a family issue. Deal with it. Pray. Well, not if you love them, right? If you love them, I mean, if you really love them, what you do is you confront. You get the people... You talk to everybody and you say, okay, listen, we've got to deal with this. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be difficult. It could even be violent, but we've got to do it. And the sooner, the better. Okay? So if you understand that, I think you'll understand God's actions now in the Middle East and why perhaps there's so many wars and rumors of wars, why the Middle East is being shaken. Turn with me to Psalm 83. Let me give you a little bit of scriptural background here. Psalm 83. Okay, remember, this psalm was written, let's see, it was, let's say it was written in the days of King David. That would be about, what, 500 years before Jesus. So 2,500 years ago, Psalm 83 was written. Here's what it says. Do not keep silent, starting in verse 1. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their heads. Verse 3, they have taken crafty counsel against your people and have consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have, verse 4, they have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Okay, so this is no, not new. Threats to eliminate Israel and cut off the people of Israel from being a nation. Who are these ones making these threats? Verse 5. They have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Edom is the name that was given to Esau, right? It means red because he traded his birthright for red stew, okay? The, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, the Arabs, Moab and the Hagrites, Geval, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot Selah. Look, if you modernize these names, what do you have? Our whole neighborhood. Okay, Amman is the capital of Jordan, okay, from the, from the sons of Ammon. All right, uh, in 2006, 4,000 rockets were fired into northern Israel. Several of them hit Haifa. People were killed in our city. Many of those rockets, as you know from your news reports, were fired from a city in southern Lebanon called Tyre. Okay, there it is. Geval, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, Assyria is Iraq and Iran and Lebanon and what is today Syria, okay? So the neighborhood hasn't changed in a long time, okay? Well, what it is is the spirit hasn't changed in a long time. But what's interesting is what does the inspired psalmist urge God to do? Does he say, oh God, we pray for peace. Here's what he prays for. Verse 9, he says, deal with them. As with Midian, okay, where Deborah and Barak fought Midian. As with Sisera and Jabin at the brook Kishon. 
verse, uh, jump down to verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O God. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Okay, so what the psalmist is saying is, is, is really the heart of God. God loves the Arab people. God loves the Muslim world. He died for them. His, he has an intense personal love for every Arab and for every Muslim. And because he has a, a personal love, he also has a personal commitment. Because this conflict, as we said earlier, the trail of responsibility leads back to the throne of God. He made the choice. He set this whole thing in action. Of course, Abraham helped by going to his wife's concubine. Okay, and, and, and Esau didn't help things by wanting to murder his brother, okay? Okay, there was sin and wrong choices all along the way, but God is the kind of God who takes responsibility. He says, I'll take responsibility for this, and I love those people. I'm not going to back away, and that's why in our generation we're seeing God step into the picture now. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, before my return you will have wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled by these things. They must come to pass. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, but it is not yet the end. This is the beginning of birth pangs. I, I deeply believe that's the situation we're in today. And so what's coming out of our region, the Middle East? Wars and rumors of wars. Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, Syria. What's, who's next? Lebanon, Jordan? They're all kind of... Shaking in their boots. Okay, all of these dictators. Israel is the only democracy in the entire region. But what we've learned is that you throw off the dictators, they're like the lid on the pot. Then you get to look what's in the pot. Okay, and it's bubbling and boiling. What happened in, in Egypt, what happened, what's happening in Libya is going to happen in Syria. They've already killed 90,000 people. And what we're beginning to see is the darkness the, the complete darkness. Um, and it should, it should engender in us a, such a sense of compassion for the people. I mean, the, the brutality of the reports. I mean, you just have to go to YouTube to see the brutality that's taking place. Muslim between Muslim and Muslim in Syria today. And what's happening in, in Gaza, in, among Hamas and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, it's just, it's, uh, it's too terrible to tell you the truth. I can just say to you, it's darkness, okay? Because what they believe is, is a denial that's based on a lie. And so God is moving to confront, and the truth is going to break in. I'm going to end with what I believe is a prophetic picture of what God plans for the Middle East. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. I believe this is a prophetic picture because the Bible doesn't explain um, why Esau's heart changes. But somewhere along the line, between his decision to murder his brother and here in Genesis 33, Esau's heart gets changed. I believe it's a prophetic picture of a born-again Esau Born again, former Muslim, born again Arabs, okay, who, whose heart is so changed that they begin to provoke Israel to jealousy. Okay. 
Now, uh, the background to this is that, you know, the, the, the brothers split up. Esau went one way and Jacob went the other. They stayed out. Jacob did everything he could to stay out of his brother's way after that. But there came a time when he could no longer avoid meeting with his brother. Jacob wrestles with the angel or the presence of God. His name is changed to Israel, but the next day he has to meet his brother. He can't avoid it. And Esau is coming with a small army of 400 armed men. Let's take a look. Genesis 33, verse 1. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and the children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times when he came near to his brother. Okay, Jacob at this point is desperate for peace with his brother Esau. After all that they've done, after all that's happened, now he wants peace with Esau. And Esau, who swore to kill him, something has changed his heart. And I believe this is the prophetic picture. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Okay, this is a different Esau, right? And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I've met? And Jacob said, Well, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Verse 9. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I want you to imagine with me what the Middle East and the politics of the world would be like if today all of the Arab nations, all of the Muslim nations said to Israel, you Jews, 2% of the land, you have this tiny sliver of the land along the Mediterranean and none of the oil? We have 98% of the the territory. We're over a billion people. What are you, like 6 million? You Jews, look, just keep what you have for yourself. We have enough. Can you imagine how different our world would be if they made that statement? In the Bible, that's where Esau got to. You keep what you have for yourself. But it's it's more than that. Look in verse 10. Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Jacob looks at his brother now, his changed brother, his transformed brother. And he says, I see in your face the face of my God. Listen, you know, we know from from the book of Romans that Gentile Christians are supposed to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, we're, we're trying our best, okay? And some Jews are coming to the Lord. But I can tell you firsthand, no one will provoke unbelieving Israel more to jealousy than believing Arabs. When the, when the Arab Christians start coming to Jerusalem in numbers and saying, ha, we used to come here to Jerusalem to take your lives, now we come to lay our lives down so that you'll know your Messiah. Borders, we used to fight with you over borders. We don't care about borders now. We have the kingdom of God. 
Your Jewish Messiah has blessed us and made us great, has blessed our families, has removed the, the hurt and the brutality and the warfare from us. We are, we, are, we are all that we ever desired to be because of your Messiah. And now we've come to bless you. And you know what the Jews will say? The unbelieving Jews will say on that day? What are you doing with our Messiah? You better give him back to us. I've seen this firsthand happen with today with Arab Christians when they speak to unbelieving Israelis. They have, they have, they have power with them. I mean, when a, when a Gentile like myself comes, or, or like, like any, any Gentiles come from other nations and they say to the Jews, Jesus loves you. you now, they don't get a really good response. Okay? But if an Arab Christian stands up in Israel... And says, I love you Jews because of your God, because of your scriptures, and because your Messiah changed my heart. The Jews go, what? (laughs) Okay, tell us more. (laughs) Tell us more. Okay, how can this be? How can this be? Our our God changed your heart? They want to know more. And I believe this is what is coming. Okay, so I want to lead you in prayer now for two things. One, anybody in this room, you've suffered rejection. And, while you, and, and maybe in this message, that's all you heard. That's all you heard. And from the, in the very beginning, you said, that's me. That's me. I'm one of those people. And I'm, I don't want to deny it anymore. I want to open this up to God. I want that acceptance that comes through his son, Jesus. I want to be whole. I want to be free. I want to be strong. I want to change, okay? I want to pray for you. And then others of you, maybe you've, you've wrestled with negative feelings towards Arab people or towards Muslims. Really, today, my prayer is that God will give you his heart for the Muslim world. He loves the Muslim world. And he has in store for them something great, something wonderful. In fact, maybe some of you sitting in this room not only will, will you hear about it, but you'll be a part of bringing this to Muslim people. Bringing this redemption, this, this change, this healing that they desperately, desperately need and the world needs them to have. So let's pray. I want, to, I want people to identify. I think, it's, it helps. I think it helps if as we go to prayer now, if if we uh, felt that he was speaking to us, there's no shame in being rejected. There can be shame in holding on to it and, and losing your own birthright. And so it's good where we're able to say, I, I have felt rejection. I am feeling rejection. There's no shame in feeling wounded, in being wounded. And we want to help with that. So if you are here this morning and that touches your heart in a personal way, what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment is just to put your hand up. And then if there are people near, as we get ready to pray, if there are people near and your hand is not up and you see a hand up near you, just put your hand on their shoulder. Just move near. If you have to get up, that's okay. We'll move around a little bit. We're getting ready to pray. So... uh, We do this all the time here. We identify. If there are issues, we're not afraid to identify them. 
primarily because we want to deal with them. And we don't want to we don't want to live with these things. We want to go past it. So in order to be healed from the wound, we acknowledge the wound. And one way to acknowledge it is just to say, yeah, that that describes me. So if you want that, if you want that kind of prayer, that direct prayer, then just put your hand up now as we get ready to pray. And if you put your hand, uh, if you see somebody putting their hand up and you feel comfortable moving in on them, just move around. There's anybody here? Want to? We see hands up. We want to do that. So we'll get ready now to pray. And it can be more than one putting your hand. We want to stand with people because we know it doesn't feel good to be rejected. And you have somebody now today that knows you better than anyone else. There's someone here who knows you. We can say, well, I understand. We do not understand. We do not know your history. But there's somebody that knows your history. And not only does he know it, he was scandalized in your rejection. He felt for that. The scripture in Isaiah said, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Sometimes we interpret pain as the absence of God, not in your pain. In your pain, God is no more present than in that, especially in rejection because his son went through it. And it hurt the father to hear his son say, why have you rejected me? He had to do it. And part of that rejection is to release you from the rejection that you have felt, to give you the freedom to be able to heal people. What did Jesus say on the cross? The first thing that he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. He dealt with that rejection, what was, what was in his heart. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He knows. He knows how you feel. There's someone today that knows just how you feel. So you, don't, you are not alone. We may not know what you feel. We don't know your history, but there's someone who does. And he wants to do something significant in your heart. You've prayed for it before, and maybe you had some, some sense of release. Today, let's, let's believe for more release. Let's pray for, for more. It's an event, and it's a process. Let's believe for more, more ground being taken more recovery being made as we pray for you. And you have a part to play in your own healing. You're not a victim, although you were victimized. You're not a victim today because of Jesus. You don't have to identify as a victim any more than Jesus did. He was a victim at the cross, but he did not identify as a victim. He went to the cross as a victor. And that's where we can stand as we walk into this now. And I say that because you're going to have a part to play in this by what you say after we pray. And we're going to invite you then where there are people who have hurt you. You've said it before, perhaps, but you can say it again today, uh, identifying as a victor. I forgive. I forgive those people who said those things that made me feel rejected. So we're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll do the second step. So here we go. You, you just, as best you can, receive what's coming toward you now. 
Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for those who, who were touched by it in a personal way. For those who are acknowledging today that there was rejection that they felt in their heart and were sorry for what they experienced. We know that your heart was hurt by that. And you didn't look at that with disinterested distance, but you looked at it personally and you felt their hurt. You know their pain. You know them. You know the sorrow. Man of sorrows, you know our sorrows. You know what they have been through. And so give them comfort in knowing that you read their heart. You know their heart. You know what they've been through. You know the moments where that knife went into their heart once again, where someone that they should have uh, been received by, a father, a mother, a leader, someone that they had every right to trust, violated that trust. And we're sorry that that happened. Would you go deep into their heart today? And would you bring more healing? Would you speak healing into those places? Would you go into those caverns, those dark caverns with your light and and let that light dispel the darkness that is there? Dear Father, for Jesus' sake, show your compassion as the good shepherd now, leading them beside still waters, restoring their soul. Good shepherd, do your work now as we wait on you. Now, those of you that are near people, you have a prayer to pray. You go ahead and pray that prayer as well. Let the Lord sing over you a song of healing. Spirit is working in your heart. Say yes to him. Say yes to him. Know that the Lord knows every tear, every place in your heart that needs healing. He is the one you go to. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Cry out to the Lord. Let your heart cry out to the Lord. Hallelujah. Yes, yes. Thank you, Lord. You're the one that holds all our tears. That's in your word. So we thank you, Father. Healing is coming. Healing is coming. Let healing flow. Bible says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 34 says he is near to the brokenhearted. He's especially near to people that have felt broken. He is close to you now. And now we step 2, we want to take this second step. And here's the part that you play. And do it again. You've done it before, but do it again now. Speak out. I forgive. I forgive. Say it. Say it so that you can hear it. 
Tell, say the people that you forgive, say it out loud so you can hear. You don't have to shout it, but you want to hear it with your own ears. I forgive my father. I forgive my mother. Go ahead. Forgiveness doesn't mean they didn't hurt you. Doesn't mean that they won't stand before a merciful and just God. God knows how to deal with people. He can deal with them. You're you're breaking that negative bond of unforgiveness. You are releasing them to the hands of God. And we break that bond. We break that bond that connects us in a negative way to people who have hurt us by forgiving them, by releasing them. Father, we let the, uh, we let the, the poison, we lance the wounds in our heart. We let the poison drain. We let it drain now. We let, let that drain from our system. We don't want it in our system anymore. We let it drain. Even people who didn't raise their hands, Lord, let it drain now. Any Anything in their heart that needs to be released, any anger, any resentment, we let that go. We don't hold it. We don't claim it as our right. We're not entitled to hostility. We're not entitled to defensiveness. We're not entitled to reaction. But we are entitled to trust in you. We have an inheritance, and we can trust in you. We can trust in you today for ongoing healing. We can trust in you. And so we, we, we see ourselves walking as people being healed by a good God. Not as victims. Not as people who, who look for the worst because it's always been that way and it's always going to be that way. We look for the best. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines more brightly the perfect day we see it getting better because of God because there's nothing that can separate us from his love neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else these things cannot keep us and certainly not wounding from someone we don't want to give anyone the right to keep us from the love of God so that was step one. Now step two, we want you to take us with. Those of you who um, know, have, know Muslims or feel a call in any way to reach out to them or you've harbored negative feelings towards them because of what you've heard or read or seen in the news or on the Internet, let's, let's pray for the Muslim world, shall we? It's really important for us as the people of God to stand in for them. Lord, we want to stand today for the Muslim world, for, uh, for the Arabs. Uh, we, we thank you that you're calling many to faith. We have many brothers and sisters among the Arabs, uh, but, but they are under the, under the oppression of this, of this hostility, the defensiveness, and the, 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 false, uh, the false doctrine. Uh, of, of Islam. So we want to stand with them. Lord, we pray that you will move with power to confront the dark powers and the principalities in the heavenly places, that you will, you will shatter and bring down the spirit of intimidation yeah. over the Muslim world. 
So that we pray for the we pray for freedom. Lord, you said you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We pray this over over our, the Arabs and over the Muslim world that the day of freedom will come. When every Muslim or every Arab has a choice what God they will serve, that they will be free to choose. And we, we, we know that on that day, millions, tens of millions will force their way into the kingdom of God. And their heart, their shout of joy will be heard around the world. They will set a new standard for what it means to be a Christian in this world. They understand sacrifice. They understand submission to the, to a living God. So we pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd now throw off the darkness. We pray and put within our hearts a compassion, a deep compassion, a deep enduring compassion and God's kind of love for Arabs and for Muslims everywhere. Lord, in spite of what is done in the name of Allah, Lord, you said love your enemies. Love your enemies. You've given us the power by the Holy Spirit to change our bitterest enemies into our friends. That is a greater power than defeating and destroying them. It's a greater power, and you've given us that power in the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us that kind of redemptive love for the Arab world so that when we hear of the next atrocity, the next uh, killing, the next, the next awful thing on, on the news, that we'll stand and we'll take that moment and say, Lord, I pray your grace, your power, your love to fall upon the Arab world. And remember the Arab Christians. In every country, there is a growing remnant of Arab Christians who are, who are struggling to, to extend the kingdom among their own brothers and sisters. So we, we lift up their arms, Lord. We stand with them, Lord, in this great struggle in the midst of wars and rumors of wars. Help us to be strong in this, we pray. And, and, and I, I, we look forward to the day when we will see that dark principality fall and, and hear the shout of joy from the Arab world. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Yes, yes. Give a shout. Give a shout. Yes, Lord. We believe you, Lord. What a com- what a compelling message that is. Compelling. What a needed message that is. The hatred, the strife, the animosity. If Jesus were asked to bring his message down to one word, he made it clear what it was. Because he was asked that question. Well, what are the, what is the, what all the prophets say? What what give it give us the word? He said, "Love God, love people." So he put in one word: it's love. It's not hate. So we're called to love, called to love even those who would hate us, even those who would come against us. Jesus made that substantially clear. So that's what we do. We're going to have a double blessing. We're going to have it in English, and then we're going to have it in Hebrew. Not Japanese, in Hebrew. Okay? We'll do it in, we'll do it in Hebrew. Because that's, uh, if, if you could read the text, that's what it would be in originally. It comes from God to Moses to Aaron to us. And it has the power to change us. When Jesus spoke to people and gave them peace, then that's what they had. And this says, give, give you peace. And so you have a part to play in this. It doesn't happen just like that. It happens as you receive it. So I'm going to send it your way in English. And then, Peter, you're going to send it their way in Hebrew.
And uh, it's the same thing in two different languages. So let's stand together. And then after you receive the benediction, what I'd like you to do is just find one other person, could be someone right next to you, and pray something into them and they into you. We'll turn this into a prayer center just for a couple minutes. We've been praying now. Whether you're here or whether you're somewhere else normally, let it be a, just a, a simple prayer. Don't get nervous. Don't get religious like you've got to come up with something great. It may be just a simple word like, I bless you today. Don't, don't feel like you've got to come up with something. But we just like to do that. We like to pray with one another. And then I'm going to see, are you able to stick around for a few minutes? You've got to head out pretty, pretty soon. Yeah, okay. Would like a, a, a few of you that are uh, regular prayer type people, like I see Lori and Jason, if you'd be up here, and others who are, who are, uh, are, are praying often with people here. Uh, we'd like you to be available up in front. If your heart was touched in a significant way and you'd like something more, you, it, something good is happening and you want to just let that settle in a little bit more sometimes it helps when I have been in a place like that I have uh, and have been in a conference I'll go to one side and then I'll come back and sit down then I'll go to the other side and hope they don't see that I already went up because I want to get prayer over and over again sometimes I've done that three and four times just so I can get <laughs> soaked in the prayer so the Bible says Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. So I put myself in that category in those times. And, uh, you know, others might have said other things, but I felt I'm really hungry. I really want to be healed. I want, I want, I want to get it. So uh, feel free to hang. Stick around here and, and share. You can use our candlelight bathrooms. We've got several of them. We have one here on this floor. We've got one on the main floor. Authentic, yes, yes, they are indeed. You might even see the paper towels that you can dry your hands afterwards, too. So uh, hang and then uh, stay as long as you can. Leave when you, when you must. Okay, you're, you're ready now to, to receive. Peace can be, be yours now. You can, you can lay hold on it. Okay, here we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and grant you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Adonai panav elecha ve yehunecha. Isa Adonai panav elecha ve asem lecha shalom. Bashem Yeshua Adonenu. Amen. Amen. God bless you. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, I, I feel like I, I need to add uh, a, a special word. I have some books at the back if you're interested. Um, couple of them. One of them, God Tsunami, is about Israel and world mission. One, Culture of the Kingdom, is the story about how my wife and I came out of the counterculture of the 60s, and embedded in it is a teaching about law and grace. My father's business is about Christians in the marketplace. And since I'm from the Middle East, for you, special deal. 
have, no, we have a special deal. If you want to buy two books, it's $20. And if you want to buy all three, it's $25. Okay? Okay. Cool.